Well, friends, how are y'all tonight? Okay, rain hasn't washed away all your hopes and dreams yet. Everyone good? How many of you like the rain in Orlando? You're in the pro-rain side. Okay, cool. How many of you guys have lived here all your life and you're like, ugh? Okay, okay, fair point. Okay, and there's everybody else, I guess, is in between. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Jude. There's only one chapter, so we're going to be in that chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 17 here this evening. If this is your first time, if you're a guest or a friend and you came with somebody, you just showed up and maybe you thought this was like the Masonic Lodge and you're like feeling really awkward right now, I don't know, uh, you're all welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. We're, we've been in a multi-week series through the book of Jude. If you don't know what the book of Jude is, it's the second to last book in the New Testament just before you get to Revelation and all the crazy stuff starts happening. Uh, it's a letter written by Jesus' youngest brother. Uh, who's writing to uh, a, a community of small groups that are meeting in northern Jerusalem, southern Syria. And in the portion of this letter that he's writing, he's addressing this really particular issue that's going on. And um, it's, it's, it can be summarized like this. You, you have that one friend who's in your group who's kind of a knucklehead, and you're not really sure what to do about them. And uh, what's important for this week and the section of verses we're going to look at is that you understand that it's a continuation of what Jude's been talking about in the verses we addressed last week. And so to set up kind of to, to, to help us to understand what happened last week so we can understand what happens this week, I'll kind of summarize it like this. Uh, Jude has been addressing people in the church. Maybe if you are in a small group Bible study, like a life group is what we have here. Maybe you're in one of those. Um, if you've ever been in one of those and you have someone in that group who's just kind of a grumbler or a malcontent, someone who causes division, someone who causes disunity, it's, you, here's how you know it. You're in the group and someone asks a question and people start talking. When it gets to that person, something inside of you kind of dies a little bit. You're like, oh, not that person, right? You don't do anything visibly because that would be unchristian, but inside, just a little bit, you're judging them. Like you're just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the worst. Like this person's going to talk for 20 minutes and it's going to be circuitous and not to the point, right? If you ever get that feeling, this is what Jude is addressing, that whole dynamic right there. Uh, and last week, kind of what he was a, a dealing with was some of these internal issues. It's the culmination of what's happening inside. Jude takes us into the psychology of the grumblers and the malcontents in our friend groups. And here's what he says. He says, these are people who are living according to their dreams. They're driven solely by following their dreams without God ever inter intervening. And so what's going on here is these are people who are living by their dreams and they're ending up in a nightmare. And so they're having a nightmare in their lives. And now because they're part of your life group, they're making your life group a nightmare. And that's what's going on. And just to, just to give you uh, something of kind of a parallel, uh, we were having family movie night last Wednesday. And we were watching Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? The C.S. Lewis adaptation. Okay, any fans of the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia series? Okay. So you guys know this. There's this really interesting part. If you don't know it, basically there's this group of heroes. They're on a pirate ship. And they travel around and live on a pirate ship. Okay, but there's three of them in this particular scene. And in this scene, they're heading into the villain. The villain in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is this green mist. And... Uh, they're heading into this mist, and they don't know what's going to be inside, but they understand it's going to be bad. But these are like three tough dudes, and they're ready for battle. So they're kind of getting bolstered. They're doing the like pre-game thing where they're playing Drake, and they're just like, yeah, let's go. Let's go, right? Or the equivalent of that in a C.S. Lewis uh, film. But basically, this is what's happening. And they have this very interesting exchange. And there's three guys, 
Uh, there's a guy named Tavros, a guy named Edmund, and a guy named Caspian, who, by the way, is a prince. And um, they have this exchange here as they're heading into the green mist. Tavros says this, so what do you think is in there in the green mist? And Edmund says this, our worst nightmare. And Caspian says this, our darkest wishes. And then Tavros responds, pure evil. What do you think's in there? Our worst nightmare, our darkest wishes, pure evil. I found that to be really interesting because essentially what this dialogue is communicating is it's a series of of parallel ideas. What they're going to find in this green mist is their darkest wishes, their darkest dreams, the thing that's on the core of their being, their selfishness. And that selfishness, when it has its way, is actually going to end up being a nightmare. And the reason it's going to end up being a nightmare is because our deepest wishes, if, if left alone and not ever brought into God's uh, sovereign plan, our darkest wishes are going to lead to a nightmare, and it's because they're pure evil at their heart. And Lewis and the writers of this kind of exchange here are trying to say something about the human condition, which we all know. Human beings, if they follow their dreams, they're going to end up in a nightmare. And so our our challenge from last week was this. Don't follow your dreams. Sorry, Walt Disney. Don't follow your dreams. Instead, follow Jesus. Okay? The problem with these people in these life groups, the reason they become grumblers and malcontents is because they're really selfish. And they have a lot of good reasons for being selfish, but they're selfish. And their individual personal nightmare can oftentimes become a group nightmare. And any of you guys who are involved in small group Bible studies know this, that the, the, the extra grace required person in your life group who talks too much or who takes us off track, who hijacks the conversation, who just complains all the time, you know that person, their individual nightmare becomes a group nightmare. And so this week, uh, Jude wants to address what's inside And he now wants to talk about that from an outside perspective. In other words, what is it that happens internally that now begins to manifest itself externally in the form of behaviors and demonstrated patterns of existing? What are these external things that happen in the people in our lives? What what is it they demonstrate that can tip us off to, okay, now this is how we know who they are? But once he does this, Jude does something really interesting. Um, What he's going to do is he's going to address the question that we've all been thinking. Anytime we go to a life group and we have someone who's this way, and we have that one friend, right, who's always in financial distress, and so you pray about it and Jesus says, give your money to them. You're like, okay, so you do Dave Ramsey so you can budget, so you can have money to give to them. And you, like, all as a group get together and you're like, we want you to have this money. And they take it and they're like, thank you, you've saved me. And then the next day on Facebook or Instagram they post, like, had a splurge at the mall, right? And you're like, ah, you wasted that money. Ah, and you're like, oh, what do we do with this person? This person is the worst, right? Why is he in our friend group? Why is she in our friend group? We all ask that question. What do we do with these kinds of people? And Jude's going to give us a really interesting answer here today. But it's probably not what you think. And so as we get ready to jump in and learn from Jude, I want to invite you to pray. Pray with me. Pray for me. And let's just ask God to make us teachable as we open his word. Jesus... I pray that you would teach us from your little brother today. Help him, and the words he wrote to a group of Christians in the first century, help those words, Jesus. Use that revelation to speak into our hearts and change the way that we approach life. Help us to move away from living like the world and move towards living like you. Help us to stop following our dreams and start following you in all things. 
for your glory and for our good and the good of the people of Orlando who we love. It's in your name we pray, amen. Jude, starting in verse 11. Jude writes this, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Man, that is a lot of speech about these people. You can tell Jude just left his life group and like got on the phone with his friends, is like, I gotta tell you what just happened. Like, hey, what kind of people are there? You are never gonna believe it. It's like, they are the like craziest people ever. And your, the friend is like, well, describe them. Oh, they're like, you know what? You know what? They're like waterless clouds. And they're like, ooh. And he's like, yeah. They're like trees that are unfruitful and they're twice dead and uprooted. And they're like, oh, snap, right? He's just laying down. Like, it just seems like Jude is being the most judgmental, vindictive, frustrated person ever. And if you've ever been part of a life group, I know my wife and I are part of a life group. If you've ever been part of a life group or a small group Bible study or a Sunday school class, you know there are people that just, uh, they get under your skin and you're like, oh, what do I do? Like, how do I as a Christian deal with these people? And I want you to notice Jude is actually doing something here that's really interesting. I want you to notice two things. Number one, I want you to notice how he describes these people because it's very fascinating. And there's a little wrinkle in there. I'm not sure if you guys picked up on. I know I didn't pick up on it until I was reading it. But number two, I want you to notice his posture towards these people. So let's deal with the first one first. Notice the descriptions. And I want you to notice there are eight of them. Jude says they are the way of Cain. They are people committing Balaam's error. It's Korah's rebellion. They're hidden reefs. They're waterless clouds. They're fruitless trees. Wild waves of the sea and wandering stars. At least eight uh, terms that he describes for them. Um, and Dom, could you mind pulling up just a little bit of the house lights? There's some people in the back that are writing some notes. I think that could be good. Not too much. It doesn't need to be like Jesus coming back bright, but like, you know, like maybe just Christmas time we're singing in Jesus bright. Is that better for people taking notes? Good? Okay, good. Thanks. So let's deal with these in turn. Number one, the way of Cain. Um, well, before, before I mention this, here's what I want you to notice. There are eight of these things. And if you'll take note, uh, these eight terms actually parallel the seven deadly sins really well. Yeah. Seven deadly sins don't come around. They're not articulated until the fourth century. This is the first century. But uh, the reason that they, they have such staying power in our cultural memory is because the seven deadly sins seem to be these things that pop up over and over and over again. And so it's really interesting to note how eerily these eight names 
relate to these seven deadly sins. So I just want you to take notice of this. So number one, the way of Cain. Cain, as you remember, is someone who killed his own brother out of hatred. So obviously this is wrath, right? This is is exactly what this is, the sin of wrath. And and Judah's saying these people, they, they walk in the way of Cain. They're just very wrathful people. They're just so selfish in terms of what they want that they're willing to kind of, in a sense, kill anyone around them who gets in their way. That's how you can know these kinds of people. This is the, the culmination of people who live only according to their dreams. They're going to ultimately be these super selfish people who are kind of wrathful in the way they go. You ever met anybody who's just so locked in in their dreams, like no one can ever get in their way, and they bull rush their way through people all the time? You're like, whoa, 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 like calm down. Like your dreams are really not that important. And they're like, yes, they are. And you're like, whoa, like, oh my gosh, Satan, like uh, he, he kind of inhabited your dreams there. This is a nightmare. Like this is crazy. Well, this is what Jude is saying. You can know people like this, uh, and they demonstrate this sin of wrathfulness. Number two, you have Balaam's error. Now, if you don't know, if you don't remember who Balaam is, he's a guy in the Old Testament who essentially was a was a priest or a minister, and he found a lucrative way to leverage his ministry for financial gain. Like he's like uh, these enemies came up, come up to Balaam in the Old Testament, and they say, "Hey, listen, we know you're a holy man. Would you pronounce a curse over our enemies?" And, um, and when you do that, like, then they'll be cursed, and then we can win in, like, battle. And Balaam goes, okay, I'll do that. Just pay me, you know, drop a duffel bag here with money in it, and that'll be great. So they pay him money, and he goes and prays a curse over these people, and God turns it into a blessing. And he keeps doing this, and God keeps turning it into a blessing. And he's like, God, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, let's maybe think, let's walk this back, Balaam. Like, I've called you to be a pastor, and, you know, you're pronouncing curses on whole groups of people. That's generally not what I want pastors to do, right? This is generally not ministry. And so when Jude says these people are walking in Balaam's error, uh, he's saying that they're people who are greedy. They're not only wrathful, they're greedy people. And you can notice this. Greed is something that manifests itself for people who are malcontents. The third thing is this, Korah's rebellion. What happened in Korah's rebellion? Well, Korah was a person, and you don't see this in the Old Testament, but you see it in one of the apocryphal books, uh, kind of the the fan fiction books that are written of the time uh, near the Bible. Uh, And in a book called First Clement, there's this guy, Korah, and he's supposed to be the person who leads one of the uprisings against Moses and Aaron. Uh, People of God get through uh, the Red Sea, get to the other side. And they're like, yay, we made it to the other side, it's great. And then they get into the desert, they start grumbling, and some of the people are going, oh man, I wish we'd been in Egypt. We might have been in slavery, but it would have been comfortable, right? Uh, The person who starts to lead this rebellion against Moses is a man named Korah. And so the idea you get uh, here is that this is a guy who is swelling with pride. This is the sin of pride. They're not only wrathful, uh, they're not only greedy, but they're proud. Korah thinks he's bold enough to go against Moses, who's God's anointed, and says, yeah, you're not a good leader anymore. I should be leader, right? This is the guy who's at work and, like, in his second week of work is going, I don't know about this boss guy. Like, he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, I should be boss here. And you're like, you literally worked here for a week. Like, what? Like, calm down, right? This is that person. And these people tend to operate this way. So the way of Cain, Balaam's error, Korah's rebellion. Four, hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now, what is this? Um, as you know, a hidden reef, if you're sailing and you hit the reef, you're like, oh man, I didn't know this. It can damage your boat. But the term hidden reef can also have a double meaning. It can mean like a blister. And so a blister at a love feast, 
uh, just means it's that person who comes to the party who's just super obnoxious. You guys ever done this? You go to a dinner party and you sit down, there's really great food happening. Then there's the one guy who humble brags all the time, right? Or maybe the one girl who can't stop talking about all these things. And like they back door, they back door their way into compliments about themselves. You know, you sit down and you're like, okay, cool. So how's everybody's week? Well, my week was good. And everyone kind of rolls their eyes and they do the whole like, don't say it. Don't anyone ask. Don't anyone ask. Someone from the other end of the table is like, why was your week good? And everyone's like, oh, right? Everyone's like, I'm glad you asked. Like, I got this promotion and I was doing this thing. Man, I just had this great work. And this guy told me that I looked really good or this girl told me I looked really good. And I was just right? And they're just like all about themselves and they just dominate the conversation in an unhealthy, unhelpful way. This is what he's talking about. Uh, in the early communities, especially in the community he's speaking to, they would have these Lord's Supper feasts. And everybody would sit down. It was potluck style. People are putting the food down. And because they're Christians, right, they have to pray before they eat food because that's what the Bible says, right, about food eating. And so, uh, you know, they would all kind of wait to start in on the food. And this one guy, these one people would sit down and they would start eating all the food before prayer, before everybody sat down. Now, you can imagine in a socioeconomic stressed time, some people show up, they have a lot of money, they can bring, like, the meat, right? And other people who are a little bit thin on the budget, they're like, yeah, I'm going to bring uh, water and maybe some bread, but it's like bread I borrowed from my neighbor, right? And that, everybody brings something, everybody gets something. Well, some people would sit down and they would think, because I brought the meat, because I think I'm the best, I'm just going to start eating it. And I'm going to eat a lot of it so that I leave like smaller pieces for everybody. Here's your other metaphor. You go out to a group meal at a restaurant and you decide to um, get the salad because it's cheap and someone else orders the steak. And then he's like, let's split it equally, right? And you're like, what are you doing? I ordered the salad. It wasn't even a full salad. It was a half salad, right? It's like $3. Why am I paying $10 so you can eat steak? Oh my gosh, right? This is the people, the kind of people he's talking about here. And the, the sin here is the sin of gluttony. It's the people who just want more and more and more and more and more food. They can't handle it. They just got to have more. So wrath, greed, pride, gluttony. Number five, waterless clouds. Okay, waterless clouds. Anybody from Texas? Where are my Texas people in here? Anybody from Texas? Okay, I, I don't see this in Orlando because when clouds come, it rains here. Um, but in Texas, clouds will come and not rain. Like, seriously, you should go to Texas right now in April, and you, you land in Dallas-Fort Worth or in Houston, or you, like where I grew up, and you'll see the, the grass will be brown outside. And you're like, why didn't they turn on the sprinkler? What's going on here? See, in Florida, you just get spoiled by all the greenery. You just think everywhere you go, it's like everything grows, and it's beautiful and lush because there's rain all the time. You're in a tropical climate. You go to Texas on the plains, Man, it's like hay everywhere. And you're like, oh my, it's like it's perpetually fall. And part of the reason, because in April, these thunderstorms come in, but you'll see this cloud will come out and it'll hang there and then it'll just blow away. And so there's this thing that happens in April in Texas where people will wake up and they'll look at clouds and they'll be like, today, is it that one? Is it that one? And the cloud, like those Adam was like, ha ha, you think I'm going to rain? No rain for you. And just moves along. And so people are outside. They're like, curse you cloud, right? They're just having this thing. Seriously, you should go to Texas and try this out. Eat the Tex-Mex while you're there, okay? Tex-Mex will make up for that. 
But I remember being in Texas and my lawn needed watering and I'm cheap, so I don't wanna pay for irrigation. So I'm like praying for clouds to come by and then a cloud comes out. I'm like, oh, Natalie, today is the day it's gonna rain and the cloud moves on. And all I can think to myself is, bro, you had one job, right? Form condensed water and then drop it on my lawn. Like, this is terrible. What, what are you even doing being white and fluffy in the sky? If you're not going to rain, you're useless, right? Oh, my gosh. And I remember thinking to myself, how lazy can you be, Cloud? Seriously, just pour water on the earth. And that's a waterless cloud. And what Jude is trying to say about these people are they're lazy. They're slothful. It's the, it's the sin of slothfulness. These are la- they have one job, and they don't do it. They're just there like, oh, I feel like I was supposed to do something today. What was it? Oh, yeah, pour water on the ground. Oh, well, I'll just float on to Panama. See ya. Bye, Florida. Right? Oh, waterless clouds are the worst. Number six, fruitless trees. Uh, when he calls them fruitless trees, he's basically saying that their ministry is fruitless. Meaning they're doing all the behavior of being a Christian without seeing any of the fruit of Christianity. They have no fruit of the Spirit in their lives. They're not becoming more loving or more joyful or more kind or more compassionate or more considerate. They're staying very pagan in their external behavior. Similarly, in the influence around them, if you drew a circle around these people, they're not able to influence anybody around them, okay? And not because they're trying and nothing's happening. It's because they're not trying at all. There's, There's fruitlessness in their ministry around them. Why? Well, it's probably because... These are the people who want to be associated with Christianity without actually being a Christian. Why would someone want to be associated with Christianity without actually following Jesus? Because they're envious of the Christians. These are people demonstrating envy, the sin of envy, and they're fruitless as a result. You want to know if you're not a Christian? Like, have you ever considered this? Like, oh, I need to look in the mirror today and consider, am I someone who's actually following Jesus? Is there fruit in your life? Is there fruit in your ministry when you share the gospel with people at your office, when you take people out for lunch, when you knock on the door of your neighbor and ask if there's any any way you can help? Do people respond? Is there fruit in your life and in your ministry? If there's not, is it possible? I'm not saying there is or there isn't. Is it possible that the reason there's no fruit in your life or in your ministry is because you're not really a Christian? You're someone who hangs out with Christians in hopes by osmosis that somehow when you get to heaven, Jesus is going to go, well, you never believed in me, but come on in, right? Come on in. I'll sneak you in the back door, right? No, there's an envy situation here going on, and and he's saying envy is not the way forward. Now, number seven. Number seven is the one that isn't really, number seven and eight aren't really uh, connected. This is where the, the seven deadly sins falls off. But number seven is this, wild waves of the sea. Um, any of you guys ever been on a boat and there's wild waves of the sea? Anybody ever ridden on choppy water? Any people? Okay, just a few of you nautical kings and queens out here. Okay, right. You want to you wanna get from point A to point B on water and you're like, okay, I'll start moving. The worst is when you're on a jet ski, right? You're like, all I want to do is just, right, just move across the water. But then all of a sudden that big yacht rolls by and like causes all these waves to happen. And you're like, and you're using twice the amount of gas to go half the amount of distance, right? It's incredibly inefficient to be on the water with choppy waves. And that's what Jude is saying. These people are like choppy water. 
It's, it's unhelpful. It's inefficient for people to be around them. People can't get where they're going because they're constantly just hitting the choppiness of the wave. It's like talking to them is like constantly hitting a brick wall. Like, oh my gosh. Right. Number eight, wandering stars. There's kind of a double meaning here. Um, If you can imagine at this time period, the way people traveled is that there's no light pollution. So they look up in the sky and there's stars. And they're like, okay, there's Orion's belt, and here's the North Star, here's the Little Dipper, Big Dipper, okay. And they could follow those stars as a compass to get to where they're going. In fact, people might give directions if there was was like Apple Maps or Google Maps at the time. It would be like, follow the North Star for 12 miles. And you're like, okay, cool. And so you look on it, you're like, is that the North Star or the South Star? I I can't tell. Google Maps has told me to keep going, so I trust them, right? If it's Apple Maps, you're like, Apple Maps doesn't know, right? (laughs) Apple Maps is the worst. No offense, Apple Maps, I love you. Please don't stop you, my Siri from working, but I'm just telling you, you're not as good as Google Maps. Anyway, um, but that's the whole thing. They're following these stars, and the stars are trying to tell them where to go. And so if a star is wandering, uh, I remember one time I was out when I was in Boy Scouts, uh, and we were trying to, you know, navigate by following stars. Uh, and I was following one time a star, and I was like, I think we should go in this direction. I had no idea, but I was like, I'll try to follow the star and see where it gets me. So I'm like in the forest, trees are hitting me in the face, and I noticed the star starts moving and moves over, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, like, oh no, did I suddenly go through a marijuana field, and now like things are off? I don't know what's happening here. And I realized it was a plane flying by. It had like been holding position, and then it started maybe a helicopter or something with a light on it. And I was like, this is incredibly scary and unhelpful. And this is what Jude is saying on one level. Wandering stars are unhelpful for your direction. But there's a second meaning here. Uh, the, the term could be a wandering star or a fallen star. And in the Old Testament, uh, uh, the Old Testament author, uh, authors talk about a star, a morning star that falls to earth or falls from heaven. And that morning star becomes the devil, becomes Satan. That Satan, Satan is like this morning star who falls to earth. And if you remember, the reason why Satan fell is because of the last deadly sin here, uh, which is someone who lusts for power. Someone who lusts for power. And so it's really interesting. Jude has now kind of talked about something like these seven deadly sins. He's used all these names to talk about these people. They're the kind of people who demonstrate either one or all of the seven deadly sins, and they're in your group. And the reason they're demonstrating these sins over and over and over again is because internally, they're the people who are following their dreams alone without any uh, check from the Holy Spirit. At no point are they going, should my dreams align with reality and the way you've created the universe, Jesus? They're just blindly following their dreams, and they are just causing all kinds of drama around everywhere they go, and they're ultimately unhelpful people. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, and that is, what should be our posture towards these people? Like, what should we do? It seems like, it seems like there's a pretty clear answer here, uh, but what is it? Like, what should we do with these people? And so I want you to notice Jude's posture. I want you to notice Jude's posture. And so I'm going to give it to you in true theological fashion, which is not this, not this, but this. Notice uh, one option could be final judgment. Final judgment. Final judgment is the idea that you look at someone and go, you are who you are, and you're never going to change. And so I'm just going to tell you, you're destined for hell because you're this terrible person, right? 
This idea, you are who you are, you're never gonna change, and I'm just gonna judge you as this final project. There's no room for improvement. There's no room for God to intercede. You're just gonna be this way forever until you die and you go to hell, right? You, you offer kind of a final judgment here. And notice Jude doesn't offer any kind of final judgment, right? So this should be a tip-off if you're someone who's here today and you're a Christian. You got a friend who's got some character issues. Uh, the, the approach that we should take as believers is not one where we just go, huh, that person, he's a waterless cloud, and he'll always be a waterless cloud until he dies and goes to cloud hell, right? Like, yeah, stop raining on the earth. Okay, yeah, destined for hell, right? There is no destiny here. There's no, I know that because of your behavior, you're never gonna change, right? That's not what Jude says here. Christians are not people who offer final judgment because final judgment is something that gets offered by God. Okay, so it's not final judgment. The second option that he could use, but he doesn't, is this, not blind acceptance. Not blind acceptance. Blind acceptance basically says, you are this way, but do whatever feels right to you. You're a terrible person, but I'm not going to make any judgments towards you. You know, just kind of whatever makes you feel good is fine. Just I'm going to blindly accept you however you are without ever talking to you. Uh, you you kind of get the sense that like you're hanging out with this person in this, in this uh, philosophy. That you're hanging out, maybe you're driving somewhere, and they're just annoying you because they're so selfish and so conceited. And everything in you just wants to be like, stop being this way. But because of cultural pressure, because we live in the 21st century, it's like, oh, I don't want to judge this person. So you're just like, that's cool, man. Yeah, keep making those racist jokes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sh- I mean, I guess that's funny to some people. It's not funny to me. But if it's funny to you, do whatever makes you feel happy, right? Oh, okay, yeah, keep keep treating women this way. I mean, it's not good for them, but who am I to judge you and speak out on this behavior, right? Uh, keep, keep consuming those uh, chemicals into your body, which are destroying your body. I mean, it's not helpful, but who am I to judge? And so just, you do you, man, and I'll do me over here, and we'll just kind of get along, right? Jude doesn't take a posture of blind acceptance. And he doesn't take a posture of final judgment. Jude actually uses a very particular word here at the very beginning of this section. Look in verse 11. He says this, woe to them. Woe to them. Now we hear that, and I think if you grew up in church, you think woe is a negative word, like woe. Okay, that's what we think. We hear Joey Lawrence from Blossom, or we hear like some other like, whoa, like that's crazy, that's bad, or like, woe to you should be almost like bless your heart. You know how Christians use bless your heart as like the Christian middle finger? They're like, bless your heart, right? Like that, like that's, it seems nice, but that's not what's going on there, right? I'm sorry if that was a little graphic. I apologize for the the hand motion there. But we think woe to you is somehow this thing like, whoa, you're a terrible person. But I wanna show you another instance of this term woe. In, um, in Matthew 13, Jesus is talking, and he's talking about the end times. And he says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And, he says this, and alas, for women... Alas, that's that same word. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as he has not 
uh, been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. In other words, when Jesus looks on these women and he thinks about what's going to happen in the very end, history is being consummated, and there's all kinds of really terrible stuff going on, he says this, man, woe to those nursing mothers, just woe to them. Woe is a term of compassion. It means this. It means, oh, man, this is, this is not good. Oh, my heart hurts for these people. I'm burdened for these people. I, I wish I could do something for these people. It's the term you get when you're walking down the road or driving down the road and you see like a dog by himself. That's those of you who are dog people and there's no owner and you're just like, oh, woe to that dog, right? Like, oh, you know, if he didn't have rabies, I would take him into my home right now, right? Like, or, you know, you watch the Compassion International, like, you guys all remember the Compassion International commercials? Y'all ever seen these? I recognize I just said commercial and all the core cutters in here were like, what are commercials? Like, I've never seen one of those. That sounds like a unicorn. But they used to have these commercials and it would be for like, it would show all these orphans in another country and it's in slow motion of them eating like a twig or something. And then there'd be like this British voiceover where it's like, isn't it sad? People in other countries have to eat twigs. But if you give money, those people won't eat twigs. They'll eat steak, right? That was always the pitch. And you're just like, oh, my gosh. Or like the Sarah McLaughlin commercial about the puppies, right? There's like all these cute dogs in there. And they're playing like in the arms of an angel. And it's just like so sad. And they're like, these puppies live in another country. And all they eat is twigs. But if you give money, we'll give them puppy chow, right? And you're like, oh, I want to adopt these puppies, right? You guys just... that feeling you're feeling right now, that's called woe. That's woe. It's just, it's from the bowels of your, your soul. You just have this compassion. And what Jude is saying is we should have compassion on these people. Woe to them. Woe to them. May mercy be on them. May God be merciful towards them. May we be merciful for them, towards them. And so what Jude offers instead is not final judgment, and not blind acceptance, but perceptive compassion. Perceptive compassion. What perceptive compassion says, this is different than just, I want to say it's different than cultural compassion, right? We can kind of feign compassion in our culture about these things. Oh, we need to have compassion on this group that's oppressed, and we need to have compassion on this. But it's, it's really humanitarian compassion. It's because they're humans, we should care about them, but it doesn't really go very deep. We're talking about like a supernatural compassion for people who are, it's, it's the compassion of someone who's created all of these beings and desperately wants to have them back in his, his grips, but they're running away from him. It's his father who's chasing after a wayward son or a wayward daughter. It's that kind of compassion. It's a perceptive compassion. It says this, you are currently this way and I love you but I also want you to know that Jesus has a better way for you. You're currently this way, and I love you even as hellacious as it is to be around you. But because of that, I want you to know Jesus has a better way for you. It's the, it's the disposition of that, that prodigal father calling after the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter and beckoning them home. It says, come home. It says, as Jesus says, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Come as you are but don't stay as you are. So here's my question. If this is the way that Jude demonstrates or postures himself towards these people, and we're very clear, right? These are horrible people. 
We've been very clear about just their faults and their, their sins and what's going on. If this is the way Jude responds and postures himself towards these kind of people, then how do we as believers begin to demonstrate that same type of compassion towards our friends, people who we come into contact with? Maybe that coworker you work with who no one else likes. Maybe that person in your life group. Maybe that person in your family. Maybe that person in your apartment complex, right? How do we, how do we posture ourselves towards this? So I want to give you three things we can remember. Three things we can remember. Number one, I want you to remember that Jesus as Lord is the outcome. If you're thinking about having a conversation and interacting with this person who's difficult to love, I want you to remember that Jesus as Lord is the outcome. The outcome isn't that you fix this person. The outcome isn't that you walk away perceived as the victorious one in this logical conversation, this debate you're going to have. It's not that you somehow have a breakthrough in a psychology type situation. No, the goal of any of your conversations, any of your interactions, is that Jesus is magnified as Lord. And I would even say this. If you're going to sit down with a person like this, let's just say this. There's a person in your life group, and maybe you're not the life group leader. Maybe you're just someone who maybe has chemistry with this person, and you think, they probably won't listen to the life group leader, but they'll listen to me, right? It's a difficult person, but I seem to have some kind of way of talking with them, right? You just kind of, some people you just have chemistry with. You're like, eh, hold on, I got this, right? You're sitting down for coffee, and you're trying to have a conversation. The way I would recommend you frame the conversation is, listen, I love you. I love you just as you are. But because I love you as a friend, I, I think I need to say some things to you, and I'm hoping you'll hear this in love. But before I ever say anything, here's what I want you to know. I believe Jesus is Lord, and I think you believe Jesus is Lord, at least on the surface. Is that true? And typically what I find is people are like, yeah, you know, for the most part, I believe that. And then I would say something like this. Listen, here's the good news. No matter where this conversation goes, we know at the end of it, we're both walking away here believing Jesus is Lord, and that's the most important thing, right? So you frame the conversation in terms of a positive outcome before you ever start. So it takes all the pressure off the table to try to have some kind of chess match conversation of getting them to this point of confession and repentance and all this stuff. You say, listen, all I want you to do is to be able to walk away from this conversation saying that Jesus is Lord. You never know. The person sitting across from the table might go, you know what? Jesus is Lord, but I haven't really been thinking about that in a while, and I'm, I thank you for reminding me. Right? That, that's a great, great thing. The person might say, you know, I don't know if I believe Jesus is Lord. Can you talk to me more about Jesus is Lord, right? Is there like a section in the book of Romans that maybe walks me towards this? Or do you have a tract with cartoons you could hand to me explaining this? Or do you have an evangel cube? Or is there a video I can watch on YouTube where another pastor explains the gospel? I would love to talk to you about believing in Jesus right now. You never know. That might happen, right? They might want to have a conversation about why Jesus is Lord. That may have been the thing that they just skipped over in hanging out with Christians, You never know. But I think you set up in your heart and you set up in the conversation before you ever get going. The only thing that matters is that we walk away from this conversation believing that Jesus is Lord, right? That's the outcome you're going for. Number two, I want you to remember that there is no repentance without truth-telling. There's no repentance without truth-telling. I observe that oftentimes Christians get into trouble because they hope and pray and want their Christian friends to repent, but no one's talking about truth. No one's talking about reality. 
And so you have these conversations where you just talk past each other. You guys ever do that where you're having to have a hard conversation with a friend and you're trying to dance around the fact that there's this core issue between the two of you? And, you know, let's just say, like, uh, you have a friend who's been gossiping about other people and you've heard them gossip in your presence, right? Now, I know no one in here ever does that, right? But I'm just saying, right? So you have that friend and you're just hoping that they'll bring it up in the conversation so you start giving them leading questions to see if, like, let's say they're talking about your friend Mary and you're hoping that they'll kind of bring it up again so you can talk about it. So you're like, yeah, the other day I was listening to the Beatles because my, you know, my church group is doing a series in Jude and I really like Hey Jude. You know, there's that line, Hey Jude, and then it says, uh, Mother Mary comes to me. What do you think about uh, Mother Mary? I mean, the Catholic idea or anybody else named Mary, right? And you're sitting there waiting, hoping they'll be like, oh, Mary, speaking of that, let me tell you some gossip about Mary. So you can be like, whoa, 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 I can't believe you're gossiping right now. But while you brought it up, let's talk about this, right? You're hoping there's a lead in or you're the kind of person who you know there's this core issue going on and you're like, we really got to talk about gossip. So how can I talk about gossip without not talking about gossip? Okay. And you're like, hey, I just wanted to talk to you about something, just something on my heart. And they're like, yeah, let's talk. You're like, well, you know how sometimes people use words to communicate, right? And they're like, oh, like text messaging? Yeah, like text messaging. That's a good place to start. Like some people use text to communicate. And you're like, yeah, on either an Android or an Apple platform? Yes, right. Sometimes that happens well, and they're like, like emojis, and you're like, yes, like emojis, and you like have 14 similes that are happening in there, and at no point do you ever bring up gossip, and they're like, ooh, I gotta go, and you're like, okay, good talk, and you walk away, you're like, I hope they got the message there, right? I really hope they understood that I wanted to talk to them about gossip so that they'll repent and change their ways, right? You're going home, you're praying in the car, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, would you just... Would you just give unction to my words as we talked about emojis and bitmojis and help them to just connect the dots to gossip, which is what I really wanted to talk about, right? We do this all the time. I see Christians do this all the time. Why? Because conflict is challenging and it's difficult. It's hard to talk to this person you love and kind of slap them in the face with this truth. But here's the thing. Without truth, there's no opportunity for, re for repentance. You've got to let truth slap them in the face because that's the only way they're going to even have a chance, an opportunity to repent from what they're doing. Repenting is believing something differently and turning and going the different direction. And the only way they're going to believe in something differently is if they're confronted with truth. And so if you have a friend and you need to talk about gossip with them, here's, here's what I would recommend. Again, hey, you and I both agree Jesus is Lord. Yes. Okay, so the outcome here, we know we're both going to agree on this. But here's the deal. I, I just, because I love you, I feel like I need to bring this to your attention. And use specific instances. Don't just be like, uh, I feel like you're gossipy. And they're like, well, because that's going to make them defensive. Like, well, when do you see me gossip? I don't know. I just kind of sense in my spirit that you're gossipy. The Holy Spirit told me. Do you agree? And they're like, no, I want data points. So give them data points. Hey, a couple weeks ago, this conversation was being had. Mary said this. You said this. And then afterwards, we were leaving, and I heard you call somebody and start talking about Mary. And that person wasn't involved in the conversation with you and Mary. That person had no, no reason to know this about Mary. And you just talked about her. And I, got, I just got to tell you, sister, that's gossip. And because I love you and I want Jesus' best for your life, I need to put that ball in your court and let you deal with it. You can be mad at me. You can be whatever reaction you want. But I need to be a truth teller in this moment, right? 
There is no repentance if you don't tell people truth. And I know that's hard, but being a Christian is not for the, not for the cowards, right? And I'm not saying any of you are cowards here today. Being a Christian takes boldness. And that, you know, here's the good news. If you follow Jesus, Jesus is full of boldness. He's got boldness uh, in such mass quantities, he can give it to us. And so if we'll just pray and ask Jesus for boldness, he can help us to do that. So that's number two. Remember, number one, remember that Jesus is Lord's the outcome. Number two, remember there's no repentance without truth-telling. And number three, remember that our role in friendship is to see people as God sees them. Our role in friendship is to see people as God sees them. Not to see them how we want to see them or how their reputation is or what the narrative that's been constructed around them is, or to see them as the identity they want to be perceived as, or to see them as the way we want to fit them into that stereotypical category. But our job as believers is to see people as God sees them. And so here's the thing. If we'll begin to see people as God sees them, we'll begin to love people as God loves them. Part of our problem as believers is we don't see people as God sees them. We see people as we want to see them or as others want to see them. And so we love people like we want to love them or like other people want to love them, which is to say we love them conditionally. But if we'll see people as God sees them, we'll begin to love them as God loves them, which is unconditional. Let me tell you a story. This is my last story, and then I'll lead us to a response time. There's this, uh, there's this uh, great work of uh, 19th century uh, Wild West literature. There's like in the, in the 1800s, basically, like there's all this Western literature that's coming about, Louis Lamar and other people. Uh, and there's this one particular story, and I forgot the title, so if you think about it, you can tell me. But basically, there's this group of men in this town in an old West Colorado mining town, and they're just kind of, you know, they're, they get off the farm or they're bank robbers or whatever they are. There's, you know, you know dudes in a town wearing black hats and doing their thing. And they walk up to the trough, and there's this woman who's kind of collapsed over the trough, and she's this old drunk. And they're just sitting there making fun of her as an old drunk. They're like, hey, look at the old drunk. Yeah, she's just sitting there. She's just so drunk, <laughs> right? Just doing their, like, dude stuff and just kind of picking at her. And she's somewhat aware and somewhat inebriated, coming in and out of consciousness and kind of aware of what's going on, but, but clearly under the weight of tremendous shame and guilt the way her life's turned out. And so the local preacher comes up. And he sees this group of men talking, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? They're like, hey, preacher, come over here. We're making fun of the old drunk. <laughs> and so the preacher obviously is going, this is not the way to approach life. And so he steps in. He's looking for his moment to kind of speak into the situation, trying to speak truth. And so he asks this question. He says, guys, you guys are approaching this woman as if she's a drunk. You're kind of talking about her as if she's a worthless person. Like, he's like, well, she's, she is worthless. She's just this old drunk, doesn't bring any good to our community. And, the preacher says, well, let me ask you a question. Who was this woman before she was a drunk? And so, you know, they all get together and they're like, who was she? Do you know? I don't know. Can you Google search that? I don't know. I haven't seen her Wikipedia page. I don't know, right? So they get back to This obviously doesn't happen because Wikipedia is not invented in the 1800s, but just in the way I'm telling it, this is what happens. They get back together and they go, oh, yeah, she was a prostitute. Yeah, before she was a drunk, she was a prostitute. That old prostitute, man, so worthless. Oh, just giving herself to all these men. Oh, can you believe she's a part of our town? They're just kind of going on and on and just complete judgment of this woman's life. And so the preacher kind of thinks about it, waits for his time to speak truth, and he asks the follow-up question. He says, well, before she was a prostitute, what was she? 
And one of them thinks and says, well, I guess she was a little girl. And he said, you know what? That's the way God sees her. And so my encouragement to you is to stop seeing her as the drunk, as the prostitute, but as the little girl who's scared and doesn't know where to go. The way we're going to love people like God loves them is when we begin to see them as God sees them. Everybody you meet, whether your coworker, that hard to deal with person in your life group, that neighbor, that person you see out and about, it just gets under your skin a little bit. When God looks at him, he sees his creation, who's lost and in need of returning, who's in constant need of salvation. No matter whether they're Christian or not, they constantly need more and more grace from the loving Father. And if you'll begin to see them as God sees them, you'll begin to love them the way that God loves them. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for my friends here today, and I pray for myself. God, I'm so given to making snap judgments and for locking people into this trajectory that I tend to see them on as if the way I see things is the best way. God, I pray for all of us that we would begin to see people for how you see them and that our hearts would break for them the way your heart breaks for them. And that, Lord, we might love our brothers and our sisters, our human brothers and sisters who are in Orlando who may not be following you, or maybe they're following you, but in a crooked way. Or maybe they're following you, but they're a little bit hesitant. Or maybe they're just not sure what they're doing. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to have just a prescient compassion, just a really perceptive compassion towards them, that we might also, you might fill us with boldness to be truth tellers, to, to build relationships with them, to win favor with them so that we can love them and we can speak truth, so that we can minister in the way that Jesus ministers, which is to invite them to come as they are, but to also love them enough to not let them stay where they are, because Jesus, you have so much more for them. Would you make us to ministers in the city of Orlando, in our jobs, in our life groups, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our apartment complexes, and everywhere you send us for your glory, for our good, for the good of the people of Orlando who you love. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand if you're able. We're going to have a response time. This is our way of just trying to think about what God's doing as he's, process, uh, he's working in us. The time for us just to process internally kind of the, the message of Jude and what Jude's trying to uh, teach us, what Jesus is speaking to us through Jude. There's three ways you can respond. Number one, we'll have a team down front of our staff, a couple of guys and a couple of girls. Guys are available to pray with guys and girls are available to pray with girls. If you have a need and you just need someone to pray with you right now today, we wanna to make sure we're here for you. We'll be down front, won't be mic'd, no one will hear it. Uh, Dom will dim the lights a little bit so that no one sees you and everyone in here is just kinda of cool with people moving around and so everyone will be cool. There'll be no judgment going on. So if you need to pray with people, we're down here. If you need to just process where you are, we encourage you to just process where you are. Maybe God's just filled your heart with a need to sing back to him, and so we want to give you a song to sing. The song we're singing is a great song, playing on the theme of the prodigal son returning home, and it's the reckless love of God. And so I invite you, if you know it, to sing. If you don't know it, feel free to sing away as well. Let's all make a joyful noise to the Lord one way or the other, whether we're singing or praying or thinking. So however you need to respond, respond right now. And then at the end of the song, I'll come back up and lead us in our hug and praise.